This episode is sponsored by By Heart. Babies need to eat. And whether you breastfeed or bottle feed, use formula, combine all of the above, you need options. We wanted to let you know about By Heart Baby Formula. By Heart has a patented protein blend that gets the closest to breast milk. It includes two of the most abundant proteins in breast milk. And Byheart actually ran a clinical trial comparing their formula to a leading infant formula and proved that babies on Byheart have softer poops, less spit up, and easier digestion. Byheart is also the only U.S.-made infant formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk. So if you need baby formula for your baby, consider Byheart. New customers can get 10% off your first order by using code ONBOYS at byheart.com. That's B-Y-H-E-A-R-T dot com slash podcast. And it is 10% off your first order. Byheart.com slash podcast. This is a limited time offer and additional terms and conditions may apply. Welcome to ONBOYS. Real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men. We're your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net and Janet Allison of boysalive.com. Jordan Shapiro, PhD, is author of a new book called The New Childhood, Raising Kids to Thrive in a Connected World. He is also an educator. He teaches at Temple University and a parent of two boys. Jordan, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. How old are your boys right now? Uh, They're 11 and 13 right now. I have to think about it because when I was writing the book, they were 10 and 12, and I wrote that so many times that people ask, I still do the same thing. (laughs) So you and they are right in the middle of that tween early teamdom stage right now. Yes, that's for sure. We uh, have a lot of listeners with kids right in that vantage point. I was attracted to your book after finding an article online. And I said, Janet, we have to read this book because as you know, screens and devices and interconnection is a top concern of parents everywhere. You cannot walk into any group of parents and not hear a comment about screens. Yes, that's true. So we read the book, but we had two very different reactions to it. (laughs) I'm kind of over here cheering, and Janet's a little bit more skeptical than I am. Okay. Well, I'm more excited for Janet's question then. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm ready to dive in. A little background. Jen and I definitely agree on a lot of topics, and screens are not exactly the place where we come together. And I will admit that I am, my kids are grown and gone and they are girls. And so the experience was very different for me, but I work with a lot of parents. And as Jen said, screens is a big topic. Mm -hmm. And Jen is parenting four boys. So this is her life every single day. I can imagine. It makes for great podcast material. (laughs) (laughs) So your book, it seems to me that the big overall point is that a fearful adversarial relationship with screens and interconnected devices is not helpful for kids 
and it's not healthy for families. Is that kind of a fair summation to you? And that's certainly one of the messages in the book. If I had to give you the big overall message, I think I would say that it's a recognition that so many of the ways that we think about healthy development, so many ways we think about psychology, the self, what it means to be a person moving through the world, situated within particular economic or technological contexts, and that we're shifting. And so therefore, we need to shift. And this like fear of the shift doesn't allow us to do that in intentional, intentional ethical, moral, compassionate, and healthy ways. While your, your framing was perfect, I think there's an, an even deeper point that runs through the book. By the time you get to the end, there's very little about screens anymore in the, yeah. in the second half of the book. Most of it is in the first half because I sort of hope that what happens as I start to describe the new childhood, while screens are certainly a major part of that experience, I think it's about a whole lot more. Well, and one thing I appreciated about your book was the evolution of how all of the shifting technologies and you traced that really thoroughly. And that was enlightening. I learned some things in there. So that was a helpful stage to set new technology on for sure. This whole idea of childhood is even relatively new in human history. Yeah, at least the way we think of what childhood is. Yeah, as, as ch- especially, you know, we think of childhood as sort of the preparation for adulthood, right? It's pretty new. And a lot of people are sort of shocked to hear that. And the best way for me to explain why that is, is if you just think about the fact that life expectancy has changed so much, right, because mm-hmm. of medical science, that it was just as normal for someone to die at four years old as it was at 40 years old or at 80 years old. There was no normal expectation for life until the industrial era when we made all these medical advances. And so how could anyone ever have imagined that you would prepare for your adulthood if adulthood couldn't be taken for granted? So our notion of childhood, especially our notion of of like adolescence and puberty, we were talking about the between Mm -hmm. age years, right? That is all a a brand new notion. One of your first sentences in your book, Jordan, was gaming is one way we bond, one way we engage in family time. Yeah. Which I immediately translated that into guy time because, and this is, I'm curious about how your book would have been different if you would have had daughters, you have two sons, so gaming is a way that you bond. I'm going to say I don't know a lot of moms who bond through gaming. Jen, you haven't revealed that to me yet. If you you do. I'm thinking about that one. So I I don't play video games with my kids, but I also wouldn't say that I don't bond with them through gaming. And here's why. I have tried playing Fortnite to the great (laughs) amusement of my children. Uh, It's not my thing. They know it's not my thing. But I keep that avenue of communication open. Like, I talk to them about their games. I'll comment. I'm aware of, like, the new season and the new things because, Lord, I cannot escape those conversations in my house. (laughs) So we do do some bonding around the games simply by me uh, not being like, oh, why are you doing that again? But I'm just curious about the the gender question, because Jen and I are always talking about that. Of course, we're about boys at On Boys Podcast. 
I think there may be some truth to the idea that it's guy time. I live alone. I'm divorced. I have half-time custody. And so when my sons are here, it is certainly a, a, a very guy house in some ways. I, I'm thinking a lot about how to answer that question, though, because I'm also a person who has always been sort of very against the traditional, the, the sort of 20th century model of masculinity. Mm. I've sort of always rebelled against that even since I was a very young kid. So I'm sort of resistant to that notion, like imagining it as a man cave kind of thing that bothers me a bit. But I, I can't deny that, of course, it's three boys playing together too. As to the larger question about gender and gaming, there's certainly what I hear anecdotally from people is that boys play a lot of video games, girls do a lot of social media when it comes to screens, but I have not seen any data that really convinces me that that's not just anecdotal experience. Most of the data I see shows that gaming is pretty even across the board. But again, I'm not convinced by that data either. So I'm not necessarily saying what, what's true. I'm just saying I haven't seen anything convincing about the gender split when it comes to digital mm -hmm. media. <laughs> I have to say at my house, it comes down to a lot of parallel digital play. One is sitting in front of the big screen TV playing Fortnite. I may be sitting in that room or a nearby room kind of scrolling through my phone. Somebody else might be up in his room. I, my uh, 16 and 18 year old the other day were playing a video game together in separate bedrooms. Even though they were <laughs> playing together, they were not in the same room. They were connected, you know, via the internet. I get it on that level of um, you can be bonding even if you're not necessarily doing the same thing. It, it was important to me to really get this into into the book is that there's all this rhetoric, I think, that, that people have and the, this sort of imagining that if everyone's sitting together looking at a separate device, they're not together. And that sort of, there's so many people who are repelled by that vision, mm -hmm. by that image in their head. And, and I really wanted to explain, because I watch it with my kids all the time, that just because they're doing separate things doesn't mean that they're not together. One, the parallel play point. Mm -hmm. Second, that that's not unique to screens. It's, it's pretty often that even kids that are not using screens would be doing separate things, but next to each other. The, the third thing I want to say about it is more throws things in a different direction, which is I, I was recently at a big family gathering with my brothers and all of the cousins. And my brothers were, were very much no, no phones at the gathering. Put you, everyone put your smartphones away. I want your cousins playing together. And they like to tease me because, you know, they're my older brothers. And they, so they go, I know, I know Jordan says it's OK, <laughs> but we're not but we're not doing it. And I went along with it and I agreed. And then I think we all probably around 70% of the, the, the event was over. And we finally said, okay, that's fine. I have to tell you that as soon as we said it was okay for them to use their devices, that was the first time all the cousins really started talking because they started taking out their devices and showing each other what was going on on their mm -hmm. devices. Until then, they were all drawing separately. They were all, some of them were, you know, two of them might've been talking, but the second it came out, the age gaps went away. Uh, suddenly everybody became the sort of shared point of reference. What game are you playing? What, what are you doing on there? And so I think we often are afraid that it's going to disconnect when I've seen this a time and time again. That's the way kids have learned to make friends even as they mm -hmm. walk up to other kids and they go, what are you doing? What games do you like? What social media apps do you have? Uh, and that's not necessarily dividing them. And this highlights the fact that our kids are digital natives and we 
as adults, parenting these digital natives clearly are not. And I found in your book a lot of examples where you said to adults, you need to. You need to show them appropriate behaviors around social media. You need to, teachers need to teach online literacy. That feels really overwhelming (laughs) because adults, number one, don't know how to teach these things that you're telling need to be taught. And there's no roadmap. How, what do we do as parents? There is no roadmap for teachers. There is no roadmap. There might be little snippets here and there, but we are, I would say broad generalization. We are lost in how to teach our children to be literate, good online citizens. That is absolutely true. And and that's part of what made me want to write The New Childhood, wh- was recognizing how lost grown-ups were um, in what, what seemed to me to be something that desperately needed more grown-up attention, right? A lot of people imagine that I'm this pro screen, always everybody should have more screens. I, I, and that, that's absolutely not true. I'm very worried about all the same things that I think the anti-screen people are worried about, right? I'm worried about whether or not we're going to get the right kind of compassion and social skills and ethics and all of those things into a, a life that's integrated with digital technology. So that was why I wrote originally, because I thought, hey, how do you, there are all these parents who are so desperately lost. There are all these teachers, are all these grownups. And I wanted to express, and, I, and at least this is, I think, one of the largest things I'm trying to express is that their fear and, their, and this feeling of not knowing what to do is sort of misplaced because we do know what values we care about and we do know how, how to in, in, integrate them. That's what parents have always had to do is to figure out how in a changing world to still make sure that those same values exist. And so while it's hard to, we may not know the technology as well as, my, as our kids. I, I already don't know the technology. My kids are way better at video games than me. I barely play with them anymore because they don't want to play with me because I stink compared to them, right? But I still talk to them about it and I still ask them the questions and I still ask them to explain things to me and I still get involved in what they're doing and I'm able to go, because I can ask those questions, just through asking questions uh, and going, hey, what are you doing there? I'm able to then bring my own values into that. And it's about the values. It's not about tech skills. It's not about, do you understand the technology? It's about, do you understand those sort of essential human values that have never changed, right? Whether that's kindness or compassion or ethic, but how do you make sure those remain as part of a, of a life that's both digital and non-digital, right? As a life where this, these are integrated into it, because that's the scary thing to me. You know, if we move into a new technology and don't bring millions of years worth of human knowledge about how to live well with each other, uh, if we don't bring that along with us, then we've really, then we've, we've really screwed up. Uh, that's way scarier to me than this idea that, hey, we might be in a different technological paradigm, right? I, I have no, we, we jumped into cars fine, right? And uh, we figured out how to do cars and we figured out how to do cars with ethics, right? Uh, we need to figure out how to do smartphones with ethics. Um, and that's going to take adults. We can't let the kids figure that out. Um, you, you know, that, that always takes adults to do. So what I hear you saying is that it still comes down to engagement and conversation. Tools aside, uh, the, the century, the time period, whatever technological tools aside, parents need to engage with their kids 
and have conversations. And for myself, I found that I can have more effective conversations with my kids about anything if I go into it with an open mind <laughs> rather than if I come to it with a preconceived notion that whatever they're doing is problematic because of something that I believe. It might be problematic, but the first thing I always need to do is listen, ask questions, listen, and then kind of go from there. I think a lot of people get confused and think that, that asking questions and listening and open mind means acceptance. That's, that's not necessarily true. I mean, to some extent, it means acceptance, but I m have many, many times had conversations with my boys that go, I don't know why you would play such a violent video game. I find it disgusting. There's nothing I like about it. Uh, you, I want you to explain to me why you like it. I want, to, uh, I want to understand that, which is not me saying, hey, don't do it. It's me going, hey, that, this discussion is important. There's many things in our lives where I'll say, where I'll tell them, I don't like it. I'm not going to make you stop doing it, but I personally don't like it. I find it abhorrent. I find it problematic. I, and I want you to understand why. I think that, that, that in general is true. You know, you have older, older children than, than me, so you probably know this better, but I assume my 13-year-old, I'm only, a, I'm only a, a, a few years away from him going to parties where things that I might not approve of happen. And I'm not going to tell him, don't go to parties because I know other kids might do things. Instead, I'm going to have those conversations with him as often as possible to make sure he knows how I feel about that so that he brings those values into his experience. Because I'm an educator, I, of yeah. course, was interested in your take on how to bring this digital world to kids in schools. And I've observed in schools, and I'll tell you what, I, I have to respectfully disagree with the amount of screens in schools. I see very distracted behavior. I see disconnected behavior. I see uh, kindergartens swiping Chromebooks and, you know, they're not interacting with the subject matter. They're not using tactile um, math blocks and, and all those kinds of things. And it feels to me a very disconnected way to educate. That's number one. Com Computer labs at schools are like the most unhealthy room in the entire school because they're, you know, fluorescent lights and big loud noises and the heat and, and there's like no air in there. So it feels really unhealthy. Who and needs then, air, Janet? I know. You have internet. It is overrated. I know. <laughs> but, I but didn't know. Wait, are there that, still computer labs? There are. There are. <laughs> no, I know. I, no, I know. I was, I was kidding, but they, they, they sort of don't make sense that, that there will be a separate space for computers anymore. Uh, right, because everyone has a Chromebook <laughs> or something similar. But yeah. along with that is the idea of how we read from screens, that we tend to skim more. I know I don't take in as much information when I read from a screen. And also just the studies that show there's less retention of information from not taking notes with hands and also reading from screens. I like cute clothes. I like having stylish outfits and I hate shopping. Armoire makes getting dressed easier. Armoire is a clothing rental membership option. And Janet and I recently have both tried it out. And you guys, it is so much fun. 
You go to their website, you get to take a little quick style quiz, takes five minutes, and then you get presented a list of beautiful clothing, pictures, wonderful clothes that you can pick out and get delivered to your house for you to try and wear in the comfort of your own home without going out and determine what looks cute, put together outfits without investing a ton of money. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off your first month. That is up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash envoys. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E, dot style slash envoys to get 50% off your first month and never have to worry about what to wear again. Try armoire today. One of the most challenging things about being a woman at midlife is realizing how little people understand about perimenopause and menopause, Janet. I just had a conversation with my sister about that this weekend. She is 10 years younger than me, so I'm 51, she's 41, and she went to ask her healthcare provider, hey, can you provide me some information? And she got information, but she was frustrated by how incomplete it seems, how little we know, and how for way too many people, the answer seems to be, yep, that's the way it is, deal with it. Mm-hmm. Deal with it. And not only are our mamas out there having to deal with perimenopause, likely at this age, but many of our moms are dealing with their sons entering or in puberty, which is kind of nature's irony, which is, oof. Cruel joke, Janet. Cruel joke. Cruel joke. Thankfully, thankfully, increasingly there are those who are recognizing that women need and deserve competent care and treatment for perimenopause and menopausal symptoms. And we know that can still be harder to access than it should be, which is why we have partnered with Winona. Winona helps women who are dealing with menopause or perimenopause. Winona is a collection of OBGYN health professionals who believe that your symptoms are important, real, and deserve to be taken seriously. Telehealth, you can access care from your home when it is convenient for you. Visit buywinona.com today to start your free visit. With free U.S. shipping and the ability to pause or cancel at any time, your path to wellness has zero obligations. Use the code ONBOYS at buywinona.com for 25% off your first order. That's B-Y-W-I-N-O-N-A dot com slash ONBOYS. Winona, menopause care made easy. So I, I mean, there's this balance of sure, they need to learn the technology, but it's also, also feels like another burden on teachers to be teaching this digital citizenship. Teachers are overwhelmed as it is. 
there's a whole lot in that question. I know. So let me try to unpack it a little. I'll start with the with your concern about walking in and seeing kids who seem disconnected. Um, and, and I believe you. I, I mean, I, I really do think that that's true. And again, part of the reason I wrote the book was to say, hey, we need to figure out how to do this in a better way, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like I am, there's no part of me going, hey, our current way of using screens in classroom is always good, right? right a lot yeah. of it's not good. A lot of it becomes a distraction. A lot of it becomes a reward for kids for doing, you know, you can play a game, right? That's not t- teaching, right? Um, mm-hmm. Right, and, and it needs to get integrated into the teaching there's a lot of distraction. I see it uh, among my college students. They struggle to not be distracted. I also look at that and go, but shouldn't, if they've had Chromebooks since they were in eighth grade and now even younger, how is it that they still haven't learned, like where were the teachers to keep them from getting distracted, right? Teachers taught them not to pass notes. Teachers taught them not to talk. Teachers taught them to raise their hands. Teachers taught them not to whisper while someone else is talking. They clearly haven't taught them how to, how to do both things at once. And that's a skill. That's a necessary skill. That is something you should be learning in school. Not sure that's happening yet. Teachers are overwhelmed, but this is mm-hmm. part of what they do. What I would add to that is, uh, okay, so now we'll go to the, uh, another part of your question, which was teachers are so overwhelmed and overworked, should they have to also deal with these digital literacy questions? To that one, I would say yes. Uh, and I'm sorry, and I have total sympathy as an educator. I think we need to remember that it has always been the job of a teacher to figure out how to take ancient wisdom right, and, and modern wisdom, and to figure out and, and to make it applicable in current times. And I don't just mean applicable to kids' lives so they enjoy it and experience it, but also so that you can use the tools of the time to be able to articulate that knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't know how to do math and communicate that through a computer, you're going to have a real problem in life at this point in, the, in human history, right? Yes, you need to know old math, and, but it's not about can you write old math onto uh, onto yellow legal pads anymore. It's can you write old math into a into a spreadsheet and make that useful? That's the that's mm-hmm. the skill that people that people need at this point. And so yeah, that's a hard thing. That's you're totally expressing completely the difficulty that teachers are in because mm-hmm. there's sort of the all this old education and no new model for how to do it. Yeah, and that needs to get developed. And so I tried to. That's why in the in the section about school in the book, I do so much of doing it in a very general way of saying, hey, here's the change of thinking, because I'm hoping that educators will read that and go, hey, there is a different way of thinking that I need to think about, and we'll get the brilliant creative teachers to help us arrive at the place. And where, then hopefully where... we can get administrators and <laughs> legislators behind all this too, because yeah. I mean, we all know there are a lot of great teachers and there are a lot of systemic issues. There's two other parts of your question I just want to quickly get to, because you talked about the, the, the change in the way we read. There's a lot of evidence around reading in both directions. Yes, I certainly skim more when I'm reading on the internet, not when I'm necessarily reading a book on a screen. Depending on what I'm reading, it changes. And But there's also evidence, especially with young readers, that shows that the ability to use multiple kinds of media actually allow the context to be clearer. You know, reading's not just about decoding the letters, it's also about, uh, about having the vocabulary and being able to see that vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And so being able to add multimedia can be helpful for, for early literacy. There's a, there's a few books about this. Uh, Tap, Click, Read is a great, 
great example that really talks about how the literacy uh, education connects with screens. As for the question of, of retention, once you get to older kids, the tweens, and do the, when they're reading, uh, I do, you know, I'm sure there's a there, there's an issue here. And part of that being, we haven't taught them to, to value words on the screen in the same way that we've taught them to value words on a, on a page. I mean, you know, if you think about how many times throughout your young life, you see a adult reading from a book going, this is really important. This is really important. Focus. Mm. You know, at the point when we actually do that across the board, I think this problem will start to go away. Finally, the note-taking one, which is a similar answer, which is just, well, well, first I'll say one thing. If you really look at the numbers on most of these studies about things like retention and note-taking and doing online work, it's actually the low end of performance that there's a difference at, not at the high end. The high end, it's about the same. Which, And by high end, I mean those who are getting A's, right? Those top mm-hmm. performers, right? Mm-hmm. Whether they're taking notes on by paper or hand or doing the same performance, mm-hmm. which suggests that it's much more about teaching the ability to to retain information, right? And, I, and one of the examples I make in the book, because I talk about that note-taking study in, in, in detail, and one of the examples I, I, I just give is every time you see a teacher write on a blackboard or on a whiteboard, you're learning how to take notes, right? You're learning bullet points. I see this in my own students. When they think they're taking notes on laptops, they're trying to take dictation, right? Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Which of course is going to have less retention, right? Nobody has taught them how to do it. I think if we did much more of teachers showing note-taking, teaching skills for note-taking with retention on screens, I think that that would start to change. Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, absolutely. Right now, nobody's doing that, which means you have kids who there's all this uh, messaging in their lives about how do you do paper notes. So they naturally know how to do it and none about how do you do do digital Uh notes. That's Mm -hmm. that's not good, right? Right. Because you do need to do digital notes. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I always talk about if I need to take fast notes, I can actually do it way better on my laptop. Um, yeah. People always go, do you, you know, I, I use fountain pens when I write by hand because I've finally figured like, if I'm going to write by hand, I want the pleasure of writing by <laughs> hand. I'm not doing it for utility at all at that point. I'm doing it because I want it to slow down. I want it to feel good. And I think mm-hmm. that's a, a good, a, a, a great way. That's how we should think about the future, both the like pleasure of writing, what you can do with writing that's different than what you can do with digital. You know, digital note-taking, you can cross-reference, you can... Yeah tag there's so much you can do but you can't have that slow carefully considered thing that you do with handwriting and i think we want to teach both of those things not Mm -hmm. one or the other this whole shift towards a connected world has happened so quickly and i think for those of us who are parenting now it's rather shocking our kids of course can't imagine that i lived pre-internet that i remember (laughs) getting our first computer And I think we all are aware, like, this is the way things are going. If anything, we're going to become more connected. There's going to be more devices. I get the sense that we right now are living through a period of trial and error. We are trying to figure out how to parent connected kids in a connected world. Educators are trying to figure out how can we best use these tools. It's going to take a while. Jordan, how can we give ourselves and each other grace as we work our way through this transition. I think you hit the nail on the head. That's where we are. And I, I guess one of the things that worries me, I mean, we, I already said this once, but I'll say it again. Uh, what worries me the most about this is this sort of, we either resist the devices or we don't. And that seems wrong, right? It seems to me the response needs to be, 
hey, parents, yes, there's so much to worry about here. Let's figure out how to solve this. Let's, no, let's figure out how to rise to those challenges. We have new problems that we need to adjust to in order to create the kind of society that we want, the kinds of people we want, the kinds of values that matter to us. This fear of devices gives them, and I say this throughout the book, we give, we're giving the devices way more power than they deserve. They're just new hammers. But Jordan, you talk about the hammer, and yet there's been no device in human history that has been able to be created with all of the applications of neuroscience and psychology that is manipulating human behavior, which is how our devices were designed. So it's not so easy to just say, oh, well, we have to shape the world around the tool because the tool actually has been manipulated to draw us in in a way that no other technology up till now has done. So I, I'm not sure I agree with that premise, okay? I know lots of people say that, so I'll explain why I disagree um, with that premise. I suspect that it is actually a premise that's been sold to us by Silicon Valley um, because it sells more advertising. If, you, if everyone believes that, that the devices are so strong, they can make people think whatever we want them to think. Most of that idea comes from the persuasive design field, right? This, the idea that, you, that, the, that the user interfaces of, uh, of software or games or smartphones are, are designed in order to be persuasive. And then they use this language where they of hacking dopamine pathways. That's my favorite, um, uh, but, which, is, which is sort of, to me, this is the most absurd thing. Here's the deal. I don't know anyone, and I've asked this question for, to major people in Silicon Valley. I don't know anyone that has put someone in an MRI and looked at what their brain is doing while designing a user interface. Nobody does that. Instead, what they're recognizing is that every pleasurable experience that an individual has includes a dopamine release. Every author in the world has gone, how do I create the best organization of words in order to keep people drawn to it? Those dopamine hits are the same dopamine hits you get when you get a good grade, the same dopamine hits you get when you hit a home run, the same dopamine hits you get when you hug. There's Jordan. Not do yeah. you think part of the problem may be we use our devices for so many things right now? Like a cigarette, pretty much all I can do with that is smoke it. <laughs> and we pretty much know that that is, has a negative impact on my body and my brain, right? So on my phone, I can talk to my mom who's in Arizona, and that's a great thing. Or I can, you know, I can find some content that's really not good for me. Are, are we as parents and adults sometimes getting confused because like there's good and bad in that thing over there. Yeah, there's good and bad in everything. And yep. I think that's absolutely, I mean, you brought up a great example because I hear all the time when the screen time question comes up, uh, when I'm at like conferences of researchers and everyone goes, well, it depends what you're doing on the screen. Uh, if, you're, if it's a kid, a, a, a three-year-old talking to his grandmother in another state, that's a good use of the device. And I always, I always like to go, well, how do you know? I haven't seen any research that shows me that's good for development. You're against the video game, but you're pro that based on a narrative you've constructed mm. about that mm -hmm. experience. Experience, right mm -hmm. um, and neither I, I'm not saying I think it's bad of course I, I let my I, when my kids I guess little, it I, depends on grandma actually <laughs> <laughs> right, right exactly but we've constructed a narrative that we all believe which yeah. is if you're on Skype with grandma that's a positive use 
where if you're playing a violent video game, shoot em, shoot em up, kill full of blood, that's a negative use. I don't think that's a bad narrative to construct for either of those categories, uh, but it is a narrative and, and a value judgment we've put on it. And that's what we do as humans is we take mm -hmm. the stimuli, we take the dopamine hits and we figure out how we're gonna put symbolic language on, on top of it that adds meaning and values and ethics and things that we care about. And that's what we need to be doing in this space. Instead of going, hey, because that's capable of giving us these sensations, we're scared of it, right? Well, no, because it's capable, we have to decide how are we going to teach our kids to, to reject some of them and embrace others? And it all comes back to how do we do that as the adults in, yeah. in this very new landscape that we have? And, and, what, and what I'm sure of is we don't do it by going, you're allowed two hours a day unsupervised uh, and no more. Kids so let's say I am a parent listening to this, like yeah. pretty much every other parent I know, I am overwhelmed. I'm yeah. never sure if I'm doing the right thing or not, but I'm listening to this and I feel like I want to do better. I'm going to take some deep breaths and try not to demonize the screens or the, the video games. Yeah. What? three concrete steps <laughs> would you recommend I could take? The first thing to do is look at what your kids are doing. Sit down next to them and go, I, what is this? Explain it to me. Why do you like this? Oh, uh, how, does it, how does it work? Can I try it? Even if you hate it, you've already made, I think you've already changed your, child, your child's way of relating to it in that one moment. Just sitting next to your son or your daughter and saying, what are you doing right there? Now you have permanently affixed into their consciousness the idea that mom or dad would is also looking at this, not just me. All right, so tip number one, look at what your kids are doing and engage with them. Share your honest opinion about it and have a, a, a truly honest discussion with your kid about it. Uh, and I mean that in saying, you might say, this seems stupid to me, but make sure you do that in a way where, where it's okay for them to debate that with you. Right? You know, my 13-year-old showed me a TV show last week. I don't know if you've heard of it yet, either one of you. Letter Kenny? I, I know it exists. I've never watched it. Yeah. L-E-T-T-E-R-K-E-N-N-Y. It's a Canadian sitcom. My kid loves this. He asked if I wanted to watch an episode. And I said yes, because I want to engage with my kids, see what's going on in his world. So he actually took video of me watching this because he knew it was going to be like my response would be hilarious. And he wanted to text it to his friend. And then he asked me, mom, what do you think? And I shared my honest opinion. I said that it was ridiculous, hilarious, and utterly inappropriate. Oh yeah. boy. <laughs> and it was all of those things. And I think by, you know, he knew exactly what I was gonna think about this show. That's why he videoed me watching it. Right. <laughs> but, it opened up that avenue. We had that conversation and he knows which parts of it I don't approve of. I can talk about that now because we watched it together. I don't need to, you know, say you can never watch this again. Although if I decided for some reason that it was a bad thing for him, I could do that. I don't think it is based on watching it, but right. to me that, that falls into the be honest. That's exactly right. And what happens is 
at least I've watched it with my kids because uh, when, when I sit with them and, and let's say they're watching one of the, these terrible, stupid YouTube videos that they love to watch um, and I tell them it's terrible and stupid and I tell them why and I go, who paid for it? I bet the video game company paid them to do it. But I hear that, overhear them with their friends. They love to be that iconoclast to their friends now, right? They love to be, oh. yeah, they're repeating that voice, right? And, and so that's exactly what I'm talking about. I've put, while they're watching, they're both watching as the, 11 and 13 year old who enjoy it because they're 11 and 13 and stupid humor is funny to 11, 13 year olds full of genital jokes, of course, yep. and they love that. They also have the imaginary dad watching at the same time who's going, well, it, it, isn't that a little misogynistic? Isn't that problematic? Is it sexist? Right? They can hear both of those things at once. I don't want to stop them from doing what, what 11 year old boys do, but I do want to make sure that they have a critical reflective voice engaging with that because so that's what matters to me. I've heard them say many of the same things to people on Fortnite that I sit there and go, I'm so glad that I've taught my kids to go, hey, that's sexist, that's racist, that's offensive to me. Those are great conversations we want to teach our children to have. When you put it that way, it suddenly sounds much simpler to me. And I'm going to guess to a lot of our listeners too. Well, good. That's it's the goal. It's the same thing parents have been doing, <laughs> just as you said before, for eons. <laughs> we share our values. We talk about it eventually we do become that internalized voice for our children. I know I felt like I was a grown up when I could hear my mom saying what she was going to say without her having to tell me. So yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I think people are really they you know, they've really bought into this idea that the tech is so strong that it's overpowering that I think it is true right now, but I don't think it has to be true. We just have to collectively go, Hey, we're going to put values into this. You know, yeah. enough, enough of letting these people whose only values are, how do I make more money decide how we use mm -hmm. these tools? <laughs> yeah. Jordan, thank you so much for your time today. This has been really enlightening for me. I suspect our listeners are going to love it as well. And we will share the link to your book in the show notes. If Fantastic. people have questions for you, want to find out what you're up to, or I don't know if you're doing speaking engagements. Where can they find that information? Well, they can either go to my website, which is www.jordanshapiro.org or www.thenewchildhood.com. Or the easiest way to get directly in touch with me is Twitter, which is, which is at Jordosh, J-O-R-D-O-S-H. Most of the time I respond pretty quickly. I love Twitter. I love interacting with people, especially when it's about the things that matter. And Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. We are Jennifer L.W. Fink and Janet Allison, and we are here to support you in parenting and teaching tomorrow's men. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.